A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Matea Roach, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and the weaponization of public safety. On today's show, a few weeks ago, unhoused folks in Vancouver were met with displacement and decampment by police and bylaw officers. Who exactly is this supposed solution meant for? And queer and trans people have been facing a new wave of violent attacks globally. What kinds of protections might actually help these communities, and what in Canada should we be focusing on? Joining me this week, is it Riley? Yes or no? It's Riley Yes No. Hello, hello. Hi, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And a new voice on the backbench, Zia Jones, senior editor at Extra Magazine based in Montreal. Thanks for coming on. Very excited to be here. Thank you. And another new voice. We're full of new voices on the show today. Urban issues and politics writer Francis Bula joining us from Vancouver. Great. Yeah, it's fun to be here. Okay, let's get into it. We need to restore Hastings as a street that is safe and welcoming to everyone. And that's what we're doing down here is surviving because that's all we can do because there's nothing left for us. So a few weeks ago, a tent encampment in Vancouver's downtown east side was dismantled. The encampment, located on East Hastings Street, has become a hub for unhoused people who are often struggling with mental health and addiction issues on top of dealing with homelessness. Police and bylaw officers came by with dump trucks to remove the tents and belongings of people who had been living on the street over the past few years. This displacement comes after public safety concerns about increased fire hazards and possibly explosions on the street. But the big question here is where will these people actually go now that they've been displaced from these encampments? And if this is even a reasonable response to such a complex issue. The mayor's office has even admitted that there's not enough shelter or dwellings to meet the needs of the people that the city has displaced. And the odds of us being able to provide 100 shelter spaces today, we couldn't commit to that. This situation of displacing unhoused folks with no clear alternative solution is not a Vancouver-specific phenomenon. This is a Canada-wide issue affecting everywhere from major cities to small rural towns. To me, it feels like removing an encampment is kind of like trying to put a Band-Aid on an exploding fire hydrant. It may remove the visible problem in the short term, but it doesn't do anything to create long-term solutions for the people who truly need them. Today on the show, we want to look at some of the deeper issues surrounding homelessness and encampments and talk about what policy options could actually address the root causes of Canada's homelessness crisis. 
I first want to turn to Francis, since you're a Vancouver local. What actually led to the dismantling of the encampment in Vancouver? Because these sorts of actions on the part of police and bylaw officers don't just come out of nowhere. No, and I've covered encampments for 20 years, at least. I've been covering housing and homelessness for almost 30. So this is not the first time that I've seen a decampment. This one was a bit different from the two previous ones that we've had the last couple of years. In this case, this encampment, which started basically July 1st of last year, so it's only been around uh, nine months. In this case, you didn't see the same kind of thing. You saw instead the city had an outreach team that tried to get people to connect with nonprofit housing providers, but the the housing providers weren't right on the scene. And eventually uh, the city, which elected a new center-right council last October, decided, no, they really needed to clear this out for two big reasons, which are issues every time there is an encampment. One is fire risk. And it was deemed to be a lot more serious because people had tents and various structures that they'd built right up against buildings. And there'd been a number of serious fires that had broken out or there were fires in the buildings behind them and firefighters couldn't get through because of the encampment in front. So that and encampments always do get invaded by criminal elements who use it as a cover to deal drugs, run a bike chop shop or whatever. That's not a partisan issue. That is just what happens. This council made a rather sudden decision to go in and clear that out, saying we've spent months, we've offered people housing or shelter at least, and they went in very quickly and abruptly and were accompanied by police, which did not happen in the last two encampments. Their belongings were not supposed to be thrown out. Everyone was supposed to be given some kind of a storage bin that looked like a garbage cart, but was supposed to be for their personal belongings. And the idea was that they would be stored while people look for a new place to sleep on the sidewalk, because there really aren't that many bases available. So I want to kind of follow up on something that you mentioned, this idea that this encampment clearance happened because there were people who, when given options by the city to move somewhere else, did not want to leave the encampment. So I'm just wondering, what were the options that were on offer? This time, there was no kind of recently purchased or built housing available. They are doing a kind of a work camp construction trailer type thing that's going to open in a month or so. I don't know why they didn't wait for that to open. They could have at least then said, here's 50 new spaces or whatever. They didn't. A lot of the shelters said that that they've been full every night for months and they had no idea whether there were new people coming in from Hastings or, or, or just from somewhere else. Yeah. So, Riley Zia, I know we we kind of centered this discussion around these recent clearances in Vancouver, but Vancouver's far from the only place that's experienced sort of similar acts of just the police raiding encampments, essentially, and displacing people with no clear pathway for where they're supposed to go. You know, there are options that are provided that are not palatable or that are insufficient uh, for the amount of people that are being displaced. So I guess to circle back to the question, like, Why is it that people might prefer to live in an encampment than take these options that the city is providing? And what do city officials not really understand about the public health dimensions of this issue? Because we hear about, like, fire safety, which is very valid and something to be concerned about. People shouldn't be living in situations where there's a high risk of fire. But then 
if they're not being provided with another option, the public safety kind of calculus to me seems like it should change. I think for folks who have really no proximity or no like lived experience or know somebody in their lives with lived experience of houselessness or homelessness, like you don't understand that even like when people see a tent encampment and they think like, oh, how horrible or how dehumanizing or how any of those things, that the level of actually agency and community that you can build in a place like an encampment is often actually far exceeds something like a shelter service or an alternative that they might have um, for exactly in many cases, the same reasons that Francis just talked about. And so like one of the things that also gets me about this is that like the, the conversation around safety of this whole thing feels very warped to me. Safety for who is like the question that comes to my mind because, well, yes, like an encampment setup is so far from perfect and it is not a, you know, a replacement for like robust housing surfaces that the current sheltering systems that we also have are in many ways unsafe for people. And so what ends up happening, I think, is the prioritization of like what they'll say is like public safety, the people who walk down those streets and also live in houses, as opposed to like these uh, people who actually live in encampments and like, you know, safety is a limited commodity. The way public safety is like, skewed, maybe weaponized even in conversations about this, even though like there we can have a conversation about real concerns is frustrating to me. If I could just weigh in on that, it's not safe in those camps. Like people have been attacked by other campers and seriously, seriously injured. Nonprofit housing group went out and interviewed 50 women living in the tents on the street. They all said they'd been assaulted in one way or another. The reality is that Drug gangs invade, and there's no way of maintaining order. I've been through these camps, like, for 20 years. They always start out great. There's a lot of support for the people there. It feels very welcoming. It feels like they develop nice rituals and so on. But then they get invaded, and it's really unsafe. I honestly can't see how you could, in conscience, allow a camp like that to, to continue when vulnerable people in that camp are being assaulted. Yeah, I feel like what we all agree on, like everybody that's in this conversation, is like we all agree that people should not probably be living in encampments in an ideal world, right? I don't think anyone is here to argue that this is a, a truly safe way to live, but it's about compared to what, right? I think it's also a sustainability issue, right? There's this idea that if you check into a shelter that you're going to just be able to stay there and that's not really how it works. In a lot of situations, you need to leave and come back the next day. It's not as though you can access a shelter and then have sort of like stable shelter for the next however long. If you don't have anywhere to go after that, that's also an issue. You are not guaranteed to be funneled into housing after you've been into shelter. There's not a lot of subsidized housing. The rental crisis is only getting worse. Just because you are sort of in a system doesn't mean that it's going to elevate you anywhere else. And I think that there's this idea that, you know, if only people would stop living on the street, their lives would be on this sort of trajectory in order to get more support. But that's not actually how it works. Even if you are, you know, in a place where you're ready and able and willing to sort of reach out and look for supports, those supports aren't necessarily going to be helpful to you in the long term. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that one. Because, you know, both the province and the city went out saying, well, we have 330 units of housing coming on stream in the next few months. When you look at the numbers, besides what's going on in the two camps in Vancouver, Hastings and Crab Park, 
there are 2,300 people on a waiting list for supportive housing. So your choice is you house the people on the street and all the people who compliantly went to shelters or wherever, they're then bumped further down the list. Or you house some of those people, but not the people on the street. And the reality is there just isn't enough supportive housing coming on stream. So I kind of want to pick up on this, like, why is it the case that there's not enough, right? Because I think, you know, we alluded to, like, the rental crisis. There's a crisis of access to housing at all levels, right? It's more difficult for people to buy. It's more difficult for people to rent. It's more difficult for people to access things like rent geared to income housing, because at least in the context that I live in, like, affordable housing is often referring to things that are pretty close to market price already and are not truly affordable. So have there been any real shifts in how we provide supportive housing to people or the sorts of resources that are allocated? Because to me, it feels like resources are actually becoming scarcer as this crisis intensifies. I live in Quebec, so I think that I'm lucky to benefit from slightly stronger housing and rental laws. I'm not as familiar about BC's situation. The systems that are underfunded that are contributing to houselessness. It's not only just about physical housing. Our healthcare system is chronically underfunded, especially here in Quebec. People can't access healthcare, they can't access mental health care, they can't access addiction supports. So when all of those systems are also underfunded, then you're going to run into issues where people are experiencing poor health, poor mental health, and are less likely to be able to, you know, keep themselves housed. What that brings to mind for me is like how difficult it is in Ontario to access things like ODSP, like the disability support payments and Ontario works for people that are unemployed or underemployed and in training. There's an incredible amount of pressures coming from different sources that are kind of like creating this downstream effect where there is a larger and larger houseless population and where like frankly a lot of people who are middle class, lower middle class are closer to being in that situation than maybe they would like to think, right? Francis, did you have any to add on this? Yeah, just because I've been covering housing and homelessness for so long, since 1998. Sorry if that's before that's any of you were born. That's my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I know. And so the federal government bailed out of social housing in 1994. And that's when... You know, about five years later, when I started covering things, that's when you started to sort of see the beginning of the effects. But for a long time, you know, the system kind of glided, even though the, the plane had run out of gas. Uh, so it kind of glided and everyone thought things were fine. And it really has taken a long time, 30 years almost, for people to realize, oh, no, this plane is out of gas for the flaws in the housing system to reveal themselves fully. And really, it has only been in the last decade that it's gotten severe enough that you're actually starting to see some changes in policy. People didn't start really paying attention to it till middle class people couldn't buy condos anymore or doctors could no longer buy houses in the areas that they thought that they should be able to live in. And that's when people started taking it seriously. And you are starting to see some change, but oh my God, it's like, you know, trying to turn the Titanic away from the iceberg. And what a lot of people don't get is the way we used to house poor people, there were two ways, build slummy tenements or really terrible housing or, or have social housing. That's the only way. There's no way the market can build housing that is built to current 
standards of sustainability and fire safety and all the rest of it. You cannot build that housing for anything that people in the lower two income quintiles can afford. You can't. Even if you get free land and a bunch of breaks on a bunch of different things, you still cannot get the rents down to what a truly poor person can pay. The the federal government has put some good money in, like the Rapid Housing Initiative. They gave money directly to cities and cities went out and bought hotels and so on to, you know, to try to alleviate some of the problem. Some provinces like BC and I think Quebec have put a fair amount of money in recent years into social housing, but it's not enough. And honestly, people just need to keep screaming about it. And the problem has to be so in their faces before politicians will do anything because the, the dirty secret that no one wants to talk about, there's not really any gain from putting money into social housing. You know, politicians love putting money into transit lines and dams and, you know, things that are visible, a wastewater treatment or something like that. But housing, you can spend billions and not move the dial more than a millimeter. And the only people who know that that housing got built are the people who live in it, unlike a transit system that gets used by millions. Are there any other sorts of policy initiatives either that are happening right now or that you would maybe like to see that you folks think could actually be effective at not just providing a sort of Band-Aid solution of removing homeless people from my site and not having them be on the street or in a park, but actually transitioning these folks to a more stable and secure form of housing. Besides the Rapid Housing Initiative, which is federal, and just for people on the podcast who might not know, it's um, the federal government, I can't remember the number, but gave, like, I think a couple billion directly to cities as long as they acquired or built housing within a year of getting the money. So it mainly went to buying hotels and motels or temporary modular housing. So that had a really immediate direct impact. One thing that BC is doing that no one else is doing is they have established a $500 million fund for nonprofit housing operators to acquire private apartment buildings so that those Buildings then stay in the nonprofit sector rather than being bought by various investors who then try and get the low paying tenants out, keeping some of those buildings in the what I call the speculation free housing zone. That's an interesting one from BC. One thing that works really well in Quebec are some of our rental protections. So you are only allowed to raise the rent a certain amount every year. There's a cap on it. And you are able as a tenant to work with your landlord, hopefully, to do a calculation um, to show how much that is before you agree to a rent increase. So every year you get a notification that says your rent is going up by this much and you're allowed to actually reject that and stay in your place. And it's up to your landlord to go to court and prove to the court why that rental increase is justified. So you're not ending up in a situation where people are living in a house for years and years and then suddenly getting the rent cranked up by like 400% or whatever. That's not necessarily going to help people who are trying to get into housing, but it is going to help people to remain housed. This episode is brought to you by Defining Moments Canada's Bryce at 100 project. Dig into Bryce at 100, a digital history project by Defining Moments Canada. It explores the work of Dr. Peter Henderson Bryce, a Canadian public health official who fought to expose the atrocious conditions in residential schools over 100 years ago. 
It centers around a pamphlet he published in 1922, The Story of a National Crime. You can learn about this history in a podcast called We Need to Talk About Bryce. You'll hear about the historical and contemporary issues, truth before reconciliation, equity in health and education, Indigenous sovereignty, and the sacred importance of children and family. Some notable guests include Dr. Cindy Blackstock, Kayla Johnston, Miles Morisot, and many more. Plus, there are accompanying learning guides for each episode of the podcast to bring these conversations into learning environments like classrooms. They include discussion questions and further readings to enrich your learning. Visit DefiningMomentsCanada.ca to learn more about Bryce at 100 and listen to We Need to Talk About Bryce wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. Want to improve your gut health? Make sure you're getting all the vitamins and nutrients you need. I've figured out a solution, and that's AG1 by Athletic Greens. I take AG1 to make sure I'm staying on top of my health game. It covers all my nutritional bases. It's just one simple thing to do, and then I know I'm getting 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, and whole food-sourced ingredients. You just mix your AG1 up with water, so it's a great reminder as well for me to stay hydrated. I was on the road recently, and I didn't want to break up my routine, so I used the handy AG1 travel packs. You even get five free packs when you order AG1. Athletic Greens makes it easy for you to keep up your healthy habits even when you're away from home. If you're looking for a simpler and cost-effective supplement routine, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com backbench. That's athleticgreens.com backbench. Check it out. Now it's time for Private Members Bills, the part of the show where we let our panelists set the agenda for once. Without further ado, I'd like to call on the Honourable Member from Spadina, Fort York, to introduce a private member's bill. Honourable Speaker, uh, my private member's bill this week is a celebration and call to action of a student organizing event that happened at U of T, where uh, specifically at Victoria College, of which I am an alum, so it hit close to home, where these students in the middle of exam season, in the middle of like one of the worst times to be a student, occupied the largest building on the campus for 19 days straight, calling for the divestment of the college and fossil fuels. And they won and they got it. And the board agreed uh, to divest within so, with some you know level of frequency um, or urgency and I'm so pleased about it. And I think that it's very inspiring and other places should celebrate that and also can use it as hopefully as a model um, for, for their own communities and, and institutions. As not an alum of Victoria College, but an alum of U of T, I also heard about this news. And I remember when I was an undergrad that was organizing that was already kind of in the works and that people have been agitating for for a really long time. So it was really exciting to see them actually get a win. Next, we'd like to hear from the Honorable Member from Laurier-Saint-Marie. Honorable Speaker, thank you so much. If you have ever rented an apartment, you know that stuff breaks in your apartment constantly. And you know probably also, unless you've had just the best luck ever, that it takes a really long time for that stuff to be fixed. So I would like to propose that every time something breaks in a renter's house, someone gets sent to break that exact same thing in their landlord's house and that it cannot legally be fixed until it's fixed in the renter's house. I think that that would just, you know, really improve the speed at which things get fixed. It would free up some backlogs in the rental court, and uh, everyone would just get along way better. 
I am obsessed with this as a as a renter, as one of these people who like back in olden times would have been able to buy uh, property as a result of my good fortune over the past year and like still can't because it's so screwed up. Huge supporter. And last but not least, uh, we'd like to hear from the honorable member from Vancouver East. My private member's bill will be that, you know, the federal government, the Liberals promised to do this when they were first elected and never did, is remove the GST that has to be paid on new apartment buildings, which just adds more to the cost of new housing and puts it further out of reach. And people who can't afford that, they end up going to cheaper housing and pushing out poorer people who are living there. So it has a big downstream consequence. So that would be mine and I'm sure that no one knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> no, I think that makes sense. This show is very much a space for nerds. So I feel like the girls who get it will get it. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This new legislation on Ontario is designed to keep the 2S LGBT community safe. Drag artists, their audiences, the business and the facilities that host those drag performances have been put at risk. This is an immediate threat right now. So if you're not going to help us in this threat right now, what are we supposed to do? Recently, a private member's bill was proposed in the Ontario legislature, which aims to create community safety zones that would protect drag artists and LGBTQ communities from harassment at performances or community events. Anyone found violating the boundary of the community safety zone could face a fine of up to $20,000. So why is this being proposed right now? Well, there have been increased protests and violent altercations at multiple specifically drag queen storytime events at libraries across Canada. The people organizing these events have been met with hateful slurs and threats of violence from protesters. This type of violence and agitation seems to be growing quickly. There's been an uptick of police-reported hate crimes motivated by sexual orientation in Canada. In fact, a 64% rise in these incidents from 2020 to 2021, and that's just what's being reported to police. And there's definitely a rising sense of fear among queer and trans communities. This fear is not unwarranted. Besides the growing trend of hate-fueled violence here at home, we've also been seeing some very extreme legislation being passed and proposed in the United States. In Tennessee, legislators recently signed a bill banning any sort of drag show, and it's a pretty broad characterization of what a drag show is. It's really anything that's an exaggerated performance of gender uh, in public spaces. And other states are proposing similar legislation. A town in Michigan recently voted to defund a public library because uh, locals in the town could not tolerate the fact that a public library might include books that talk about gender and sexuality. This year, the U.S. legislative session has seen more than 350 anti-trans bills introduced across 36 different states, including to new data released by the Trans Legislation Tracker. And this breaks last year's previous record of 170 specifically anti-trans bills. 
Here at home, Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino's office has said it's unacceptable that children's events across the country are being bombarded with hateful rhetoric. Homophobia and transphobia have no place in Canada, and he said this in response to some of the protests that have been targeting drag events. So Canadians often like to rest on our laurels and say that we are better than Americans and that our country is more socially progressive and that the things that we're seeing happening in America can't happen here. The problem that I have with this is that what's happening in America started out with what we are seeing happening in Canada right now. And so the question that I have is, is this sort of rhetoric and looking down our noses at Americans actually helpful? And shouldn't we actually be focusing on how we can create a safer society for queer and trans people here at home? Zia, why do you think there is specifically an increasing level of hate directed at drag events these days? Because we've talked in the intro about all sorts of different sort of anti-queer, anti-trans legislation that's being imposed in the U.S. Here we're seeing drag queens and drag events specifically being targeted. Why is that? I think there's a few reasons for that. One, I think that while not all trans people and certainly not even most trans people are drag performers, both drag performers and trans people bump up against what is expected in terms of gender roles and gender norms. And I think that there's a underlying discomfort for a lot of people around that. Two, I think when we're looking at drag events and the backlash against them, it's not typically, you know, bachelorette parties going to drag bars that people are concerned with. They're concerned with drag time story hours, which involve children. And People are worried, you know, supposedly about how these drag events are influencing children. So I think that, you know, drag events, especially when there are kids present, serve as really fertile ground for a moral panic and a way to push back against LGBTQ rights. Because people can say, you know, this isn't about gay people. This isn't about drag. This isn't about transness. This is about protecting kids. Completely disingenuous argument, but one that's being made nonetheless. I also think that this is deliberate, right? This didn't come out of nowhere. This weekend, I was reading an article in the New York Times, not exactly for a ground for positive LGBT coverage, but this article was interviewing somebody who was part of a conservative advocacy group. And what she was saying was, you know, back in 2016, after the election, we started to look at what are the hot button issues that we can use to whip up conservative support. And they did a bunch of polling and they found that trans issues was something that people had really strong feelings about and really wanted to push back against. So I think that there has been really deliberate groundwork for the past, you know, five to 10 years, building up this anti-trans sentiment and building up this anti-queer sentiment. And people are using kids and their exposure to queerness and transness in order to sort of bring people in to that feeling. What existing protections are there in Canada for queer and trans folks right now? Like, what is the lay of the land here currently legislatively? Obviously, there is hate crime legislation that covers any number of groups, including, you know, gay and trans and and so on. I was really interested when you were talking previously about the zones that would be created that would be sort of safe spaces, almost like what there used to be around abortion clinics. If you disagreed with whatever was going on, you weren't allowed to just wander in and start disrupting everything. I think everyone's sort of sorting out what the protections are, because this is also new. Like when I looked at the coverage of BC, it's just really been since maybe last June 
that we've started to see people showing up at libraries or, you know, events to protest. I think people are just figuring out what are the protections and what else do we need. I used to work with Canada's LGBTQ secretariat that like released uh, Canada's national LGBTQ action plan last year. I didn't see it through. I was only there for a couple months. So I <laughs> the end product is not like I'm not tied to it. But what I gathered from this, though, is that like actually a lot of people, the first things they think of like, well, surely this form of expression and, and gender identity and gender expression um, should be protected under, say, like charter rights, for example. But actually the charter doesn't name uh, gender expression, gender identity um, at all. It's mentioned sexual orientation, but like gender is like a, a, a whole specific realm that like there aren't actual words in, in our laws for necessarily, um, in our big ones that like lots of people know about. And, and Francis is right, certainly that there is like anti-hate crime legislation, which should encapsulate that nonetheless. But what I have found is that a, I think because of this like little bit of Canadian exceptionalism that we think that like, you know, gender discrimination, sexual discrimination is not as bad here as it is in, say, the States, that translates into less funding than we should probably have. So like the LGBTQ secretariat, I think, had like a hundred million dollars tied um, to their plan for the action plan. And that is like a drop in the bucket in terms of the need that we know that communities have for their safety, for bare bones, never mind joy and, and space to create and an empowerment and like all of those other things that are, you know, beyond just survival. There's actually a huge gap in policy and law. There's not anything that I know of, at least, that specifically looks at the way protections for and mitigation against hate for LGBTQ people, especially on the basis of gender. Broadly speaking, Canada's Human Rights Act does include sexual orientation and gender identity and expression as uh, prohibited grounds for discrimination. So that means that it is illegal to discriminate against LGBT people in theory. That means that there are protections against housing discrimination and protections against employment discrimination. But again, those things don't necessarily always get enforced. We know that employment and housing discrimination still happen regularly. So having legislation in and of itself or having sort of protections in and of themselves are not always a guarantee that you are going to be protected as, as a marginalized person in Canada. I think that discrimination based on gender identity and sexual orientation is something that's actually incredibly difficult to prove in a lot of cases, right? I think that Anti-discrimination law, it's very difficult to make a claim regardless of what you're actually being discriminated based on, right? If you're facing racial or religious discrimination, that's also incredibly difficult to prove. I think that there's an additional layer when it comes to queer and trans people where since it's a bit more of an invisibilized identity in a lot of cases, people may be discriminating against you in a way that's like a lot more subconscious and therefore more difficult to tease out. And like one thing that I feel like a lot of straight people don't always understand is the way that like from a very young age, queer and trans kids are discriminated against, even like if they don't realize themselves that they're queer yet or that they're trans yet, that there's just this kind of ineffable quality that people realize they do not like about that person. And so like these protections are good. It's better that we have them than that we don't have them, I think. But then how you as a queer or trans person are supposed to actually say, you know what, I think that I'm not being rented to routinely because people are recognizing that I'm trans and saying, you know what, actually, I don't want you here. I, I don't really know how many people ever get their day in court to demonstrate that that's what's happening to them. But in terms of like specifically mitigating concerns of hate, what is the role of the federal government and what should that role be? Like, should it expand in some kind of way? 
I've been writing a lot these days about like the rising right in Canada, where Canada is actually like a global reader, especially in online hate, like again, Canadian exceptionalism be damned. Um, and so one of the things that like really strikes me about it is that like, our anti-radicalization um, policies in place are, are really terrible as well um, for a long time, especially when it comes to anti-radicalization on the basis of like, you know, of homophobia, queerphobia and transphobic beliefs. Most of the time, uh, the up to this point, the government of Canada has like tried to target specifically like religious extremism as opposed to Meninists and incels and like all of this growing poses day-to-day threats to people, um, types of extremism. And so um, we're really far behind actually in being able to address that through like funding and legislation, data collection even. Another part of it though that like I think a lot of progressive movements and the government misses is not seeing the link between queer phobia generally and colonialism and white supremacy. And so then they target these things as if they're like individual vulnerabilities and not like the way that this country, the foundation of it, the way it all works is enshrined in such a way that it's supposed to uphold this this gender binary. Queer people have existed here. Trans people have existed here since time immemorial. And it was only 150 years ago on this land or so that, you know, that became, you know, seen as deviant or, or not allowed or all of these things. There is like this deep lack of recognition of the ways that our entire society is built to uphold those gender hierarchies and those those systems of hate. And so until we can recognize that, I always wonder if we're going to be only getting at half measures for what we actually need. I feel a lot of pessimism when we talk about legislation and policy, because also who is going to uphold that, right? Like you can say, you know, I don't want people protesting within 100 meters outside of a venue, but who's going to be responsible for keeping that in practice is going to be the police. And are the police going to do that? Probably not, right? And even, you know, you see this with hate crime legislation all the time. Any queer person can, in theory, go to the police and say, you know, I I experienced a hate crime, but most people don't want to because they don't have a good relationship with the police. When people do do it, there's really no guarantee that they're going to be taken seriously. So putting in more legislation to me without like a profound kind of cultural shift or without doing that sort of more philosophical work, I just don't know. I just don't know that I can conceptualize something that I believe is actually going to make a difference. I wanted to add one thing too. I think it's important in these kind of very quickly shifting cultural, social dynamics that um, people in positions of prominence speak up. I think that matters. And sometimes it matters more than legislation to have politicians, community leaders saying this is not acceptable as a backup. That is a component of change, social pressure. I think the sort of hopeful note for me is, as Riley said so beautifully, like queer and trans people have existed on this land forever. We've always been here. We're not going anywhere. And hopefully someone can figure out some laws that will actually do something to protect us. But we've always protected us. And that's certainly going to continue. All right, let's adjourn. That's been The Backbench. We'll talk again in two weeks when it's Taurus season. Taurus is my sister sign. I'm excited. If you've been following along with what happens in Ottawa, let us know what you've been watching closely, what you'd like to hear us discuss, and what esoteric Canadian politics content you want us to break down. 
Send us your questions, your concerns, and your rants. You can email us at backbench at candleland.com, and we're also on Twitter at BackbenchCast. I'm Matea Roach, and you can find me on Twitter at Matea Roach. Francis, where can people find you? I'm on Twitter at Fabula Vancouver, and I write primarily for the Globe and Mail. And Zia, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Zia Jones A or at extramagazine.com. And Riley, where can people find you? People can also find me on Twitter at Riley Yes No Maybe. And on my website, I have an archive of all of my work. So check it out. RuPaul's Drag Race season 15 wrapped up on Friday with Sasha Colby being crowned America's Next Drag Superstar and winning a prize of 200,000 US dollars, which I don't want to know what that is after tax. It's going to be a lot less than we think. She is now the fourth transgender or non-binary contestant to win a mainline season of RuPaul's Drag Race uh, in a row, counting the US series and All-Stars. This episode was produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Noor Azriye and Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Annette Ejofo. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. If you value this podcast, support us. You'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on merch, tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis by keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.